When you talk to business leaders, one of the biggest problems they have is the people stuff. My guest on the Reset podcast today is Zoe Ralph. Zoe is author of the book, People Stuff. Zoe helps leaders implement systems that help them see perspective from three different angles, from mine, yours, and the bigger picture. Welcome to the Reset Podcast, Zoe Ralph. All right, so Zoe Ralph, uh, welcome to the Reset Podcast. Is it good being you? Oh, yeah, it is good being me, except for the back pain I'm having right now, which is not so good. (laughs) Oh, no, that's never good, is it? No, apparently I have a twisted pelvis, which comes from very tight upper body. So I'm learning how to... uh, I always thought you had a very tight upper body. (laughs) That sounds so dodgy. (laughs) (laughs) That was meant to sound dodgy. But I've been I've been thoroughly loving your book People Stuff. So for for people who haven't read it, t- t- read it. Tell us a bit about People Stuff. Uh, yeah, okay. People Stuff came from the question that I was always asking my clients like, okay, what's your biggest challenge right now? And they're like, Ugh, the people. It's, you know, it's the dramas with their executive team. They're not stepping up or they're having infights or uh they're stuck in silos. There's backbiting. You name it. All the biggest problems that leaders have generally come down to the people dynamics. And so I thought, ah, that's so frustrating for them because all organizations want to make a massive contribution and they get caught up in these stumbling blocks when it comes to people interactions. And I thought the solution to that is perspective. And that's what the book is about. It's how you develop perspective first so you can get the right solutions to deal with your most challenging people dynamics. Right, because you you kind of talk a little bit about the the Zen of that, don't you? And that if we can if we can have a look from a few different perspectives. Well, I believe fundamentally that perspective is power. The way that we see ourselves, the way that we see others, and the way that we see the bigger picture, can give us the insights we need to make the solutions that will have a long lasting impact. So perspective is point of view, and you can have a point of view from any number of different positions. Mm -hmm. And the first part of the book is really about how do you actually develop perspective? And you want as grand and as big a perspective as possible so that you can navigate complexity and volatility and uncertainty. And I forget what the A is in the VUCA. (laughs) Ambiguity, (laughs) ambiguity, volatility, uncertainties, uh, complexity, and uh, ambiguity. So when you can see things from different angles, it, it gives you a much more nimble ability as a leader to make interventions that are the correct ones instead of just tackling an issue from the surface. When it comes to people dynamics, the, the biggest mistake I see people make is that they assume that what they're facing is a personality problem. That's usually what it defaults to. So you have two people who aren't getting along in your team mm-hmm. or you with somebody else. And you're like, oh, they're just different to me. And it just comes down to personality. And as soon as you make that assessment, it kind of you kind of throw up your hands. You might as well give up because personality is not something that we're ever going to change necessarily. So mm. people kind of tie their hands behind their back thinking that I'm just stuck with this. They're just different to me. And the reality is, is that's not often the case of what's driving the conflict. If you look below the surface, and this is a way to develop perspective, is to peel back the layers of what you're fa- facing, you find that uh, it's not just personality. Uh, may have a contributing factor, but it's systems. The systems in your organization often create the friction that causes the drama, not necessarily different personalities. So that's the first piece. And when you dig a little bit um, 
deeper underneath that, you figure out sometimes it's the values and the beliefs that are creating those systems that are the challenge. So you have to go several layers. Okay, so going even deeper again. Yeah, yeah. It's a systems thinking perspective. So um, the work of Peter Senge uh, speaks to this and the whole iceberg model of, you know, what you see above the surface of the iceberg is the visible problem. But there are patterns, behaviors underneath that. There are systems that create those patterns. Underneath that, you have your values and beliefs, and you have this meta story that creates it all. So I, in people stuff, I go through some of the different processes you can go, you can undertake to unpack these different layers and these different angles of a problem. I like that one of the things you, you talked about from the perspective point of view is to have your perspective, their perspective, and then the big picture. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of, that was a little aha moment for me there that, that to be able to say, okay, what are, and almost be systematic. You talk about having systems and stuff, being systematic about, okay, let's look at it from three different perspectives here. That, that seemed like a, a great idea as I read that one the other day. God, thank you for that feedback. <laughs> yeah. The, the first part of the book is about the practice of perspective, how you actually can see things differently. And then the next part is about how do you see yourself as a leader? What are the, and specifically, I use the practice of archetypes, which archetypes can serve you best in different situations and which ones. And I use archetypes as opposed to styles because archetypes are like a character that you can become. Archetype has a deeper root to it, deeper energetic root to it. So an archetype, when you say the word, has a whole cascade of stories behind it that we're familiar with, like a whole story narrative that we can, we just instantly understand. Like if I say mother, that, you know, creates a whole bunch of bang, 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 bang connections in your brain that you understand yep. what a mother is. So when I say elder, which is one of the most fundamental archetypes I think leaders need to adopt, we have an understanding across cultures what an elder is and does, feels, thinks, and behaves. So when we use archetypes, we can think, okay, if I'm being an elder right now, how would I think about this? What would I do about this? How would I feel about it? And it's a little bit different than an avatar, which is like surface attributes, you know, their name, their location, their age, that kind of stuff. This is more like an avatar it, with a backstory. <laughs> okay, you're going to go with avatar with a backstory. No, Let's go with that. Avatar, that's right. No, I like what you're saying there because it's it's being able to get all of the all of the different parts of that person and sort of put them together. Yeah, it's it is. It's parts of the person. It's more a. It's more about their their journey, I guess, like the archetypal journey that you go through. And each archetype also has a shadow, uh, which is like the not great version of self is how to yes. describe how to describe the shadow. And each of the archetypes has a trigger that drives us into the shadow. And it's something we need to navigate as leaders as well. Like we can have best uh, aspirations for a particular archetype. And then if we let ourselves slip into shadow, there's usually a trigger. So for example, the elder um, is really a powerful archetype that would be fantastic to embody all the time. Now the trigger that can uh, trigger us into our shadow and the shadow of the, of the elder is the tyrant. The mm. trigger is hubris or arrogance. And right. it's an interesting thing. As soon as we think, oh, I'm being such a wise and compassionate leader right now. How good am I? And we start to spin our point of view, I our perspective. <laughs> how awesome am I? Yeah. As soon as you get that happening, 
all of a sudden you've got the hubris coming on and you can have potentially allow the rise of the tyrant. And it's a very oh. thin line. Like quite a few elders or quite a few tyrants think they're being elders, that they're the wisest and most compassionate people around. But the thing is they've been distracted by their own story about how awesome they are. And right. the story I give in the book is around Adam Newman, the former CEO of WeWork. Mm-hmm. And if that's such an amazing story, like the concept so can you, of WeWork. Give us a short version of that story because um, sure. some people might not have heard it. But it is an amazing how big they got so quickly and then how nothing they got so quickly as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, WeWork is essentially uh, the creation of co-working spaces. And they grew exponentially over 10 years from one building that they subleased and then they subleased again to tenants, basically to the gig economy workers. So people who are working for themselves wanted to have a communal space to share office resources and company. And they created a fantastic vibe in these early WeWork buildings, which was fun. It was avant-garde. It was new. And then it kind of started to become a bit frat boy-ish, a bit too boys clubby, a bit too beer keggy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it deteriorated from that point of view. Um, the reason why I say that uh, he st- Adam Newman started out so well is because the concept behind WeWork was – came from his experience on a kibbutz in Israel, the whole idea of communal living and supporting one another and being together and of sharing resources. Like these are really fantastic principles, which I think are great aspirational things to put into a business. And that's what he wanted to create originally with WeWork is uh, is the sense of community and belonging so that nobody ever had to feel alone. And that principle extended to their other businesses that they created. Um, like I think it was um, – Live by we, live by we, we live. I can't remember right. now. So they had they had short term accommodation and dorm style concept. So the idea yep. again was about uh, sharing resources. The love and the into- thing. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, yeah. So they rose exponentially. And what happened with Adam is that he was tall. He was good looking. He was extremely charismatic. Like he could speak the big speech. He could sell the vision of this was going to transform the way that we lived and work. You know, we'd all come together in this communal experience where we'd love and care for each other, one another. Like, what a great message. Mm. Um, And then he started to fall prey to the traps of hubris. He started to believe all the stories that are being told about him about being Wonder Boy. He got jazzed up on the deals that he would do around New York and around the world about getting properties and converting them and launching quickly and all this. They got a lot of properties really quickly. Oh, yeah, they did. Heaps of heaps of properties around the world. And they never really, he never really worked out the long-term viable business model. And that's sort of what had him come undone eventually. He always say, yeah, yeah, let's, you know, conquer the planet first and the finances will take care of themselves was the general gist of what he was trying to tell his investors. Mm -hmm. So he'd get one big investor after another to prop up the renovations and the opening of the buildings. But the income from these small tenants, these small independent gig workers was never going to, they're not paying much. They're on a short-term contracts. And then, you know, not far away was, of course, be decimated through COVID-19 were things like that, volatility in the economy. So as soon as like there's a sneeze over in the economy, gig workers are very, very, yeah, very dramatically affected. So it's kind of hard to set up as a business model. So the some of the investors are like, can you tell us how we're going to be making money long-term out of this? I can't see how it's profitable. 
So that was one of the things that led to his downfall. But the other aspects of it is that he became so – he felt prey to uh, hubris and the traps of power. So when we get energized by success, by power, we can actually lose our sense of empathy. This is the work of Dacher okay. Keltner in his book, The Power Paradox, which is a fantastic piece of work. And he looked at this and he said, as soon as we start to have this experience of being granted power, like we don't take power, we get given it by other people who see us as worthy contributors because we're leaders and we're in service to the greater good. We're like, mm -hmm. yeah, we'll give you power by giving you a title, by giving you authority, by giving you privileges. And all of a sudden, title, privileges, authority feels amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, you go give from being a... Exactly. And our perspective spins from focus on others to focus on self. How can I get more of this? How can I, like, how good am I? The hubris thing comes on and we disconnect. Our empathy circuits get broken down and we can't really empathize anymore with what's going on to the people. And we, we start to behave inappropriately. We might have uh, inappropriate sexual relationships or flirtations. We might become more impulsive. We abuse alcohol, drugs, food, any other addiction. And if you look at what's happening in the media in Australia today, you see a lot of that with different politicians yeah. who get, yeah. let's say, so politicians get sucked right into the power game. And all of a sudden, they're, you know, making inappropriate tweets. Their behavior in offices are completely inappropriate. They're having inappropriate um, sexual relationships or even um, sexually abusing others. Like these are all symptoms of being derailed by power. Uh, I'm not saying that's the only reason that pol politicians are misbehaving. I suspect it is a massive contributing factor. Yeah. Um, so this is one of the traps of the of the shadow archetypes that we need to be mindful of. It's amazing, though, that going back to your, your original thing about perspective, if you can maintain that perspective, that that me, you, and and the bigger picture, mm. then that that should be a good antidote to that. If if you can remember to keep to keep going back to that perspective, shouldn't it? You should be able to, you know, get it back. Luke, you've nailed it right there. So that's one of the things I do say is that check your perspective. Where are you focused right now? If you're focused on yourself, you need to just spin that lens outwards and focus mm -hmm. on the other people around you. And that will diffuse some of those shadows. Absolutely. So it's always about perspective. Where where have you got your focus? And it doesn't mean that you give up focusing on yourself. You don't become a selfless martyr because martyrs end up very dead. Yep. <laughs> it's the question of good. and and rather than or. It's not me or you. It's me and you, not just me yeah. though. <laughs> but then also you've then got the bigger picture as well. Is you've got to That's have right. a look, you've got to have a look at the whole lot and. Yeah, I love I love the way you brought those three together just to be able to and I actually went straight away to, to a client of mine that day and sort of said, Look, we've got to look at this perspective like like you taught in the book. And it was they were like, Yeah, wow, that's what we're not doing. And they they implemented it straight away. So it's amazing how how zen that is and how quickly it you can the awareness will actually bring about that sort of pulling it back in and seeing those different perspectives. Luke, I love how you shared exactly uh, immediately what you learned. I think that's fantastic. That gives me great joy. And I think you're right. Like when it's, when it feels like a, a principle that's true, then it just, it rings true. And mm -hmm. the idea of focusing, like one of the, one of the things I'd show or work with, with my leaders is the tension between focusing on now and next. 
So now is very immediate and important. And next is the big picture, longer term future. And that's focusing on the future as well as now is one of the things that leaders often are challenged by. The other balance that they need to contend with is the balance between team and task. You know, how do we balance getting the work done as well as keeping the morale high? And those polarities, they they look like opposites, uh, but actually inform each other. And that's one of the art and practices of being a wise and compassionate leader is to be able to do both. It's now and next. It's team and task. It's me and you and the bigger picture. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, perspective helps us geolocate across all of those. Yeah, I think perspective also helps. Um, in his in his latest book, um, Think Again, Adam Grant talks about different types of conflict. And one of the things, and you brought it up a little bit before, is that we can have you can have task conflict and you can have relationship conflict. And I guess with the people stuff, um, the way you're saying is, if your systems are set up right, then you'll have less of the the relationship conflict. Am I am I hearing you right with that? You probably have less of the task-related uh, conflict as well. Um, yeah, okay. Cause I, I, his, his take on it was if, if you're in a place where you've got a relationship conflict with someone, then task conflict doesn't help because people put up walls and don't, don't take advice and things on board. Whereas if we can keep the conflict to a task-related related thing but not make it personal, then we can actually have a, have a debate and have a dance and have a wrestle with a topic and come up with the best idea without turning it into, you know, I hate you. Does that <laughs> Wait, make yeah. sense? It absolutely does. And that's when we th- like the I hate you thing, we often think it's a personality conflict, but it's not. It's often, as I say, a systems piece. And as Adam is saying, it's symptomatic of a task conflict that's gone pear-shaped, where we misconstrue yeah. the debate over task as being a debate over whether you're a nice person or not. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, if you come underneath the layers a little bit, you'll be able to point those out. One of the chapters in the book, um, which unpacks this from a different lens, is called The Four Devils of People Stuff. And we look at some of the problematic extreme behaviors that can come up in organizations, things like people being angry, argumentative, and resistant, uh, people being emotionally tirating, (laughs) people having emotions. That's it. Yeah. Um, so you can have people who are really expressive verbally, either from an anger or an emotionally upset point of view. And then you have behaviors which are um, undermining behind the scenes and uh, destabilizing. Or you have uh, behavior that is like energy vampires are being shut down. Mm. Like these are all symptoms of people not coping well with what's going on. And when you look that at energy what's- vampires too, they love pulling other people into their drama too, don't oh, they? Oh, yeah. They just yeah, love, they you know, do. Uh, a drama is not a good drama unless you can share it with as many people as possible. <laughs> of course, because that validates your point of view, your perspective. Yeah. yeah. So when we unpick some of that, and it, those are often, they look like personality problems, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And largely they're triggered by um, other factors. And the major overarching thing that triggers them is fear of loss a fear of loss of some type. And uh, David Rock, the Australian neuroscientist, did a lot of research around this of what causes contemporary uh, survival reactions, of which all those behaviors described are symptoms of somebody who's in a survival mode. Mm -hmm. And we've got fear of loss of power uh, and Mm -hmm. autonomy, like, and control. That can cause us to become very argumentative. We've got fear of loss of... um, 
position, which is all about fairness and status. So these are these are not relationship uh, type of conflicts. They're and they're neither kind of task related concepts. They're they're more primal to us. You know, these are like survival triggers. Um, we've got fear of loss of place, which is about our sense of belonging and inclusion. And then we've got fear of loss of performance. You know, am I going to be able to produce the results I've been tasked with? Am I going to get sunk with this? Is somebody making yeah. me do something that I can't and shouldn't be doing? So all these kinds of triggers create negative responses. And if we dig underneath all those triggers, we can f- discover that what we can put in place are some systems to address some of these issues. So somebody who's concerned about loss of power and autonomy, say, for example, if we have clear articulation of uh, who decides what, who who's responsible and accountable for what, we can start to put some boundaries around the issues that people get inflamed over. And all of a sudden, we have a decrease in this, some of these behaviors. So in my mind, a lot of these problems can can be avoided or mitigated or even managed by having really effective uh, people management systems in place. So, what what would some of those people management systems look like? Would just to be? Would it just be to? It seems like they're almost there to alleviate fear. There, they place. are there to eliminate or reduce fear to um, create a sense of belonging. So, let's go a few through a few of them. I mentioned. Um, for, for the behavior, which I call the fire bug, somebody who's just like raging with, with anger, usually Lot that's- fires all over the place. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. And they're quite volatile and you can tell them um, they're yeah. pretty angry. That's usually related to loss of power and control. So okay. as if you put systems in place around delegations and decision-making, accountability and responsibility, that can diminish some of those issues that can come, come up for the fire bug. The storm driver is the emotional ranter, and they're often triggered by a sense of fairness and status. So the the system that you can put in place for that is recognition. How often are you recognizing people, acknowledging them for contributions, honoring their experience and their expertise? So if you put a, a cadence or a rhythm of appreciation and recognition in there, that can help diminish some of those triggers. Um, for a sense of belonging, the loss of a sense of, of place in an organization, the rituals and practices and the structures you need to have in place there are anything from how we recruit people to how we onboard them, how we include them in discussions and welcome them to the team, how we run our meetings to make sure that everybody has a voice at the table, everybody feels included, like our ground rules for meetings and, and team behaviors and through our cultural norms. Those are kind of the systems that we need to have in play there. And for the performance piece, the loss of performance, which triggers our uh, ground splitter, which is somebody who goes behind the scenes and does undermining and backbiting, usually because they're afraid to speak up or don't feel they have the prerogative to do so. What we need there is really strict accountabilities and um, checks and balances in terms of workloads. So we have visibility on people's performance and workloads and commitments. Um, so the, th- the third devil, I've, which I didn't describe properly, which is the energy vampire one, is uh, is called the water bomber. So they're kind of like they okay. ooze emotion all over the place, whether they're Really visible. You haven't been stuck in yeah. bushfires near your place lately, have you? With all of these, um, all of these analogies we've got there, also there all seems to be a bit of a bushfire theme to it. Oh, there's the firebug, the storm driver, the yeah. uh, the ground splitter, and the water bomber. So they're all quite 
elemental. So behavior that is survival-like, which all these four devils are, it's very primal. It's very elemental. So I looked at, when I was teasing out the patterns here, I was like, oh, that's kind of like this and that. And the combinations of the elements, wind, fire, water, air, creates the storms around us. And um, I just matched that to patterns of behavior. So whether I love it's, it. It's really cool. You're going to enjoy that chapter when you get to it. <laughs> yes, I haven't got to that. I'm, I feel really bad. I've normally tried to read the whole book by the time I get to talk to someone on the podcast, but I haven't actually got all the way through this one yet. But I'm looking forward to that one, The Four Devils. So what what does a, a normal sort of, um, in the work that you do with companies, what, are, what is the... What does it look like for you normally? What would a normal day look like going into a company to talk about leadership? What, what are the main things you come across? Lately, I've been doing some work around two different things. I'm doing facilitation work around strategy. So what are we doing now that um, we're looking at strategy? So what's our strategy to contend with the, the difficult people challenges or our, our situations here? How do we create accountability? So the accountability and responsibility piece is what I often handle with strategy, that and the bigger picture long-term perspective. So how can we get um, do environmental scanning, scenario planning, um, problem tree mapping, which is all out of the first chapter of people stuff. That's the kind of strategy work that I do. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece of work I've been doing a lot of is culture, culture facilitation days. And that's putting in place our culture compass, which looks at some of the, the, the systems I mentioned in the four devils, you know, what's our agreed accountability, what are agreed behaviors, what are our values, our beliefs, uh, what's our culture manifesto, how are we going to operate as a team and reflecting on that as well as creating something for the future. Yeah, you can see if all of that, all of those pieces fall into place, your culture gets sorted out. And, and uh, how do we, how do we go about sort of making accountability something that people want to do? Uh, or want yeah. To have? Great question. And I would point people to the work of Stacey Barr, who is a uh, key performance indicator specialist. And her work, she always says, you know, don't make your accountability slash KPIs a rod for people's backs. And the reason that accountability can feel like a dirty word is because often the mistake that leaders make and organizations make is that they give people a bunch of KPIs, which drives solo-esque behavior or lone wolf type of behavior because they often Just so I can hit my KPIs. KPIs because it often means your remuneration is linked to that or Mm -hmm. that you get chastised or somehow punished if you don't meet these specific um, outcomes. Now, the Mm -hmm. reason why that's a problem is because an organization is a complex beast and having to say this one human is responsible for that particular result is often a misnomer. It's like, no, they're they're part of an entire ecosystem. And so accountability can feel like a dirty word because it feels like you've you're trying to produce results and there's so many different factors at play that you're often being punished for things outside of your control. Uh, yeah. so say for example, last year, right? So during COVID, how were people meant to achieve their sales targets when Things are completely outside of their control, like border shutdowns and travel bans and that kind of stuff, prevented them from doing any kind of the usual business activity in some particular business circumstances. So if they, many people lost their ability to meet their targets, therefore reach their bonuses, et cetera. And so, of course, it becomes a dirty word. But I think you change this around. So your question was like, how can we make accountability not a dirty word? Is that we change what we mean by accountable and what we mean by responsible. So accountability is 
when we look at an organization, let's look at the system of the organization. What are the system, systematic interplays of work? What are the processes that we have in the organization? Where is there friction? That's not helpful. How can we fix that up? And so when we look at I'm accountable for this part of the system, it means what we're looking at doing is how do we make that part of the system more effective? And uh, the responsibility piece is more about what are my specific tasks that I need to do in order to contribute to the improvement of the overall system. So if we break down accountability and responsibility a little bit like that, it changes the whole willingness for people to engage uh with the accountability concept, because all of a sudden, it's not just about, you know, are you doing your job properly? Are you working as hard as John? Or, Mm. you know, or is Susan working harder than you? And therefore, they deserve more money. Like that kind of crap does not help organizational performance or team performance and team engagement. But when you say, right, how can we as a cohort, improve the systems in the organization so that all of our work improves? Um, the whole organization uplifts, and then there's more of the pie to share around. That's a completely different energy. Yeah, isn't it? So we it's still not have... your KPIs, KPI of the whole, the whole of the department or the whole of the, the unit that you're talking about. That's right. You're talking about, well, there's different results. There's the results of the organization as a whole. Those are lag results, mm-hmm. usually figured in sales, profit, that kind of thing. Yeah. But those all happen after a whole bunch of activity from a whole bunch of different people in different areas of the organization. So if you only measure success and outcomes by those lag measures, you're missing the opportunity to increase the performance of the organization. And performance isn't just about profit, et cetera. It's also about the difference that we're making for our clients. It's about the impact of our work. Mm -hmm. And if you want great engagement, you want every individual employee to know that the work that they're doing is contributing to the long-term vision and impact of the organization. It's got to be meaningful to them. They've got to have a line of sight to what they're specifically doing, whether it's data entry or whether it's designing a new program, that that is actually having a knock-on, flow-on effect for making a difference in our clients' lives and whoever we're serving. That's the work of accountability and responsibility, not just here's your KPIs, get them done or you get punished. So it's almost turning accountability into what piece of this whole puzzle am I and how am I going to make sure my piece fits in the way it should? That's right. Is that is that what we're talking about? That's exactly right. It's like how is my work affecting the people around me in a positive mm-hmm. or negative way and how can I improve that to help the whole of the organization uh, do a better job? So yeah, there's I love a- that. There's very much a connection inter inter responsibility that we have with each other, and it helps improve people's perspective on the organization, and it helps decrease the sense of silos in an organization as well. Because that is a massive issue, particularly as companies get bigger, isn't it? That the you know the learning and development part doesn't talk to HR, and they don't talk to payroll, and they don't those yeah. those silo things. I, I guess when you look at accountability, that they only become accountable because they're one little silo. And I guess that's where where a lot of people problems can stem from, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. Uh, and that's one of the challenges that a lot of my leaders talk about is that, let's say they're a CEO of a local council, and their individual direct reports, their managers are fantastic in managing their own area. But they don't necessarily collaborate well. They don't necessarily understand how their work is affecting their, their neighbor's work. And those silos can be, it can increase the friction, can increase those relationship 
or and task conflicts, if at, yeah. um, to quote Adam Grant. And if we have a different way of presenting accountability and responsibility, as per Stacey Barr's work, then all of a sudden people will see the connectivity, the interrelatedness, and they can't help but look above the parapet and see how the upstream flow is affecting the downstream flow and where they sit within it all and how what they do can have a positive or negative effect to the people around them. And all of a sudden, your silo mindset is gone because you've got a picture of the organization, how it interacts on one page, mm. and a, a beautiful systems map, um, which is definitely a better way of understanding the interactions in an organization than the typical uh, org chart, which is start at the top and flow down, yeah. which is not at all how an organization works. But you're just, it almost all seems to come back to being able to have that perspective, to be able to have that perspective from the person next to you and have that, that perspective of the big picture. And once you've, once you've got that, you so many of those problems go away, don't they? And we just don't have that habit of looking for those different perspectives. That's it, exactly. So the more that we can see, the better we can lead. And yeah, when we nice. practice perspective then we get to be able to see where the barriers are and where the blockages are and where the opportunities are. If you don't do that, we just keep doing the same old, same old. We keep staying reactive. and Making we the don't... same mistakes until uh -huh. we actually finally learn from them. Yeah, That's right. That's yeah. right. So where, where can people find people stuff? You can find it at any of the online bookstores. We've got an audio book across many of the audio books. Book platforms. You can get it from me direct on my website where I sign every copy at zoerouth.com. Like, Routh is mouth with an R. And you just click on books and there is people stuff right there. Okay. And if you need some help with some people stuff, we can find you at that same website. So, zoerouth.com. That's it. There you go. Zoe, it's been really great. I'm loving your book and I'm dying to get to the, the, the second half of it done. But uh, thank you very much for coming on the Reset Podcast. I really appreciate it. Luke, it's been a pleasure. 